Shrink Wrap Radio number 833. Neuroscientist Joe Ledoux, PhD on putting the middle back into mental health and more. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. psychology you need to know when just enough to make it dangerous it's all in your head and now here's your host dr dave my return guest is the multi-talented award-winning neuroscientist author and musician joe ledoux his pioneering work is focused on the brain mechanisms of emotion memory, and consciousness. We'll be discussing his thinking around putting the mental back into mental health as well as highlights of his remarkable career. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Joe Ledoux, welcome back to Shrink Wrap Radio. My pleasure. I inter- yeah, I interviewed you back on uh, my other podcast some years ago, a Wise Counsel. And uh, at that point, it was on the synaptic brain and and memory reconsolidation, two books that you had done. And today we're going to talk about... And that was a long time ago. Yeah, it was. It was. And a lot of water's gone under the bridge since then for both of us. And uh, and, uh, particularly interested in, in... a film that you sent me, which helped me to prepare for this interview. So I'll be making reference to that. But first, um, um, I'd like to begin with you putting your concerns out there that you've expressed about putting the mental back in mental health. What are you getting at there? Okay, well, yeah, that's... um... That's a topic I've been really kind of uh, consumed with lately. And, you know, it, it kind of, um, <clears throat> one way to frame that problem is in terms of something that happened in um, 1917 and something that happened in 2018, so a century apart. Wow. Um, the first thing, 1917, uh, Sigmund Freud said something like, um, if we could understand anxiety, it would shed light on the whole of mental existence. And then in 2018, uh, some colleagues of mine um, who were not particularly happy with the way I'd been talking about uh, research on on fear and anxiety um, said that Ledoux was sending psychiatry back to the dark ages of subjectivity. Oh, and no, so, not that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's an interesting thing because 
the if you follow the the history of uh, psychotherapy, of course, you know Freud had a big role in the early twentieth century. Um, but then in the mid twentieth century, psychiatry decided it needed to be more scientific. So medications were coming along and so forth. Yeah. And who was who was like testing medications? Well, it was mostly people who had been trained as behaviorist um, and knew how to test animal behavior were hired by drug companies and they would put animals through the, the testing apparatus. And the idea was, of course, at that time that um, the mind was irrelevant because all we needed to understand was behavior. Yeah. Uh, and so that was one factor that was going into how psychiatry was gonna interpret these results from, from animal behavior. Um, but the other factor was that um, psychiatry was trying to put Freud in the rearview mirror in general, yeah, because yeah. you know there was kind of a backlash against the whole Freudian thing. But rather than getting rid of the stuff that was kind of you know a little out there, the you know all the sex and all all the things he was talking about that were less acceptable, they got rid of the entirety of subjective experience. So. You know, behavior therapy came along, drug therapy came along, cognitive behavior therapy came along eventually. And cognitive behavior was kind of more of a a kind of addressing that issue in a sense of putting the mental back into what had been happening for the decade or so before. But as yeah, they it kind became, of shoehorned it in. They shoehorned it in, but then it <laughs> kind of became more more metric driven anyway, right? So you had to like uh, you had to have ways to characterize everything. So it was about measuring measuring behavior, measuring various things, uh, using measure these metrics to get insurance companies to pay for uh, treatment and so right. forth. So I think you know and I, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a therapist, but I just you know I read a lot about this stuff and I try to understand it from the point of view of the brain. And I, my perspective is that you know until we um, accept that people go to therapy because they feel bad and that changing their behavior can help, but it's not necessarily going to solve the problem of how they feel. We've got a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as a clinician, I have a particular bias towards subjective behavior or subjective yeah, experience, that is. Right. No, that's, I mean, I think every therapist wants to make their patient feel better. Sure. The question is, how do you do that, right? And so I think that, you know, when too much is done in a session, for example, if you are, if you have a patient with a spider phobia, phobia for example, patient, th those patients don't like to see spiders, obviously. So there's a kind of resistance to doing CBT on them and extinction therapy because they have to like, you know, be in the room with the spider. But suppose you could like uh, subliminally present that spider to the person's brain. Um, and we know that those kinds of danger signals will go to the part of the brain I've worked on for a long time, the amygdala. We might be able to extinguish the amygdala subliminally. So the patient wouldn't know that the spider is there because it's being presented outside of conscious awareness by the quick flashes and so forth. Yeah. And so then, then the, you know, metaphorically, we would have tamed the amygdala. I mean, a lot of other parts of the brain are involved in that kind of stuff. But just as a metaphor, think of this taming the amygdala. Now, once you've done that, then the patient is more comfortable with spiders in the room and talking about them uh, and not being hyper aroused and, and all of that and jittery. 
Um, but now you can talk to the the patient about their memories about spiders and try to change those memories a bit, like their 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 kind of conception of them their, themselves as uh, someone who's afraid of spiders, and um, and they could see that they have now been released a bit from the spiders by these the uh, the treatment that was done before. And so you can begin to shape memory. In other words, taming the hippocampus again, metaphorically, changing memory. Now, once you've done those three th two things, I think maybe the brain is now ready for good old talk therapy. You know, and just to because you've kind of gotten some of the impediments out of the way. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think even medications could be useful there. But my opinion about what medications actually do is it's kind of like you go to a restaurant in New York. Uh, where I live, Brooklyn, uh, and the music is always too loud, right? So some <laughs> old guy like me will ask the waiter yeah. to turn it down. Right. <laughs> and so the waiter turns it down. It's the same awful heavy metal song you didn't want to hear in the first place, but it's not as annoying, right? And so I think that's what, that's what the drugs might be particularly effective at, is turning down the volume of the state of anxiety. They're not going to get rid of the subjective experience of anxiety, but it's just going to be a little less annoying. So I think there's a lot uh, we can do, but we need to, I think, reconceptualize a lot of, of uh, the way we've thought about fear and anxiety. And that's what I've been doing in my work since 2012, when I wrote this article called Rethinking the Emotional Brain. Yeah, now, and <clears throat> the uh, reason so, somewhere in there, you got tagged as Mr. Amygdala, and that was part yeah. <laughs> of what you were trying to escape, right? That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I love the amygdala. I think it's, uh, you know, it's been, a, it's been very good to me. Um, yeah, right. you know, they, if you remember Saturday Saturday Night Live in the seventies, there was a guy who was on. A, his name was Derek something rather. I think I forget, but he's a, he played this uh, um, this baseball player. Baseball has been very good to me. Very baseball yeah, has been very good. The yeah. amygdala has been very good to me. You know, it's like, right. um, but it what it's good for has not been exactly what I I was uh, thinking. The way I was thinking about it, you know, I I did my PhD studying split brain patients um, with Mike Zanigan in the nineteen seventies, and from that work, I came to think of um, emotions as cognitive interpretations of situations, right. and so the the behavioral and physiological responses that go with fear and anxiety, I thought of as being kind of like these subcortical states that when they're activated would trigger some kind of need to cognitively interpret. You know, we, we, we're reviewing all of this stuff in split brain patients in terms of cognitive dissonance, that the patient would generate these confabulations to explain why a certain behavior was generated. And that was to reduce the dissonance of um, that results from the fact that we all believe we have free will. So it, it's uh, uncomfortable to see our body producing a behavior that we didn't choose, we being the conscious person. Yeah, so yeah. Propose... describe that a little bit because you did this ex uh, these experiments in which you showed that the brain, the split brain, did know something had gone on but couldn't articulate it. Right. So basic idea is you, you know, you present a picture or um, uh, we had a patient who could read in both hemispheres, which was unusual. So we were able to put words in the right hemisphere, 
um, by, you know, you flash them to the left side of the visual space. The word goes to the right hemisphere. And normally that word would cross over to the left, but when the brain is split, it stays in the right hemisphere. So if the like, you know, stand up, it's like two words, stand up, the guy would stand up. You say, why'd you do that? He said, oh, I needed to stretch. Now we're talking uh -huh. to the left hemisphere, right? So the left hemisphere didn't know why he stood up, but he stood up, so there must be a reason. So generate that explanation. Or if the word was laugh, he'd go, ha ha. We'd say, why are you laughing? The guy would say, oh, you guys are so funny. And so it was like, you know, never missing a beat. The, those yeah. explanations were coming out. Yeah, yeah. So we, we propose that, you know, this is not just true of the split brain, but in all of us, a lot of our behavior is controlled unconsciously. And when we unconsciously behave, we've got to, you know, we, we're fortunate that our brain has some mechanism for generating those rationalizations, those narratives that re-explain everything, that, you know, reduce the dissonance of violating free will. Uh, so it allows us to con continue to think that we have free will, even when behavior is produced unconsciously. So that was the, the background from which I went into rat research to try and understand the, <clears throat> the brain systems that would generate these emotional behaviors that would then require some kind of dissonance reduction in uh, humans. But I was doing it in rats. Yeah, and interestingly. I didn't go looking. Yeah, interestingly, you did not find a fear center as was suspected, as, as was thought to exist, an emotional fear center. Rather, it was a byproduct in a way. Uh, tell us about that. Well, part. I, I, yeah, I mean, I found that it's not that I had to find the amygdala as being involved in fear because that had been around for a long time before. What I did was I discovered ways that sensory information gets to the amygdala and ways that the emotional responses come out. And so it was natural for people, including me, to talk about the amygdala as a fear center, but I called it a, an implicit fear center. And that the conscious experience of fear would be what the cortex was doing. Yeah. Um, but that, that distinction didn't hold. You know, people just didn't grab the, the implicit, explicit distinction the way they did in the case of memory. So you got implicit memory in, in the uh, in, in the cerebellum and the basal ganglia and so forth um, but you couldn't have implicit emotion in or implicit fear in the amygdala it just didn't people didn't want to hear that it was more like the amygdala is a fear center and there was no distinction between implicit and explicit and that became part of the ni nimh industry of studying um the amygdala to try and find cures for addiction for fear and anxiety for autism all kinds of things and you know, I was part of that. My work was part of the, you know, generated some of the data, a lot of the data that went into the popularity of the amygdala being involved in fear. Um, and I'd be introduced as having been this, as someone who had discovered how fear comes out of the amygdala. And I kept saying, no, that's not exactly the case. But, you know, I didn't like make a big deal out of it. But after decades of being introduced that way and the field kind of running away with this idea that the amygdala is making fear, I decided I had to do something. That's when I wrote that paper, Rethinking the Emotional Brain. Yeah. And that's where I said that it's not fear. What the amygdala is, is a defensive survival circuit. It's an ancient circuit that, is, that can detect and respond to danger. It uh, allows every vertebrate animal, which every vertebrate has an amygdala, so in every vertebrate from fish 
through amphibians, reptiles, birds, mammals, all, all of these uh, vertebrates have an amygdala that can detect and respond to danger. Now, if we go to invertebrates, and you know, um, they, they don't have an amygdala, but they have their own defensive survival circuits that allow them to detect and respond to danger. Yeah, and even if we go to, yeah, th this is something to, that has amazed me of late, and something that you observe in your work is that uh, the smallest little creatures will avoid <laughs> getting hurt and scurry sure. away, and so you know I find that there are bugs that don't belong in the house, and I'm inclined <laughs> to squash them. Well, they're not inclined to well, be squashed, <laughs> yeah. and they're amazing <laughs> how quickly they, they well, flee. You know, that goes back pretty far in, in, uh, in nature. I wrote a book called The Deep History of Ourselves, the 10 billion, uh, 4 billion year story of how we got conscious brains, and I traced the history of danger all the way back to the earliest forms of life, yeah. bacterial cells that, that were, you know, some of the early, they're the oldest kinds of, of uh, bacteria, the oldest kinds of cells that uh, are still with us on Earth today. And the first bacterial cell that ever lived billions of years ago, almost four billion years ago, had to be able to detect and respond to danger to stay along, stay alive long enough to reproduce and generate another bacterial cell, right? They split in half and that becomes the next cell. But if you don't live long enough to do that because something else gets in your way, for example, a high concentration of acid that you might be kind of swimming around, if you can't detect that acid and move away from it, then you're not going to uh, live long enough to reproduce. So you have to be able to detect danger and move away from it. And you have to detect nutrients and move towards them. Yeah. So those are survival uh, uh, capacities that are as old as life and have nothing to do with psychology. Yeah. Right, psychology very is, is <laughs> psychology is our is an interpretation we apply to behavior, and uh -huh. so even in humans, let's take the kinds of behaviors we have. We have a, we have innate reflexes that has nothing to do with fear, right? That's just like a you know you startle or you freeze. Well, freezing is more like a an instinct or a fixed action pattern, as the ethologists would call it. So we've got two levels there: reflexes and and instincts. Another level is habits that, you know, we start out doing them methodically, but then they uh, they become automatic. None of that is going to trigger fear uh, because it's all habitual, right? Or it's all automatic. Fear comes in when you have the ability to cognitively interpret the situation that you're in. Uh, and some organisms that can cognitively interpret that situation can also be conscious that they are interpreting it that way. So that's, those are the levels of, of control that come about. And only if you can be conscious of what's going on, can you be afraid? If, you're not, if you don't know it's happening to you, you can't be afraid. Yeah. Okay, now I want to switch gears because <clears throat> I promised uh, our audience <clears throat> that you are a very complex person and uh, have had a very, uh, very full life. So I want to and I had the benefit of this film about your life, which is one of the extraordinary things that's happened for you. And uh, I learned some things that I certainly didn't know. I knew that you had a long-standing passion for music because I knew about your group, the Amygdaloids, but yeah. I didn't know 
where that came from, from the fact that you grew up in Cajun country and, in fact, are of, I guess, Cajun origin. I'm a Cajun, yes. You are a Cajun. I mean, you know, <laughs> in Louisiana, um, South Louisiana, where the, you know, the Cajuns live, um, it didn't <laughs> matter so much. It didn't matter so much what your um, your past was. If you lived there a couple of generations, you know, if you had your family lived there a couple of generations, you became Cajun. So my mother's family was Italian and German, but they'd been there for a while, and so they were Cajun. Um, um, my father's family was was French on both sides, though. So I'm, you know, I'm like a kind of Euro trash blend of Italian, German, and French. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But the the, the the you know the time that I was growing up, you know, I, I was born in 1949, post World War II, and the parents of that generation wanted their kids to be American. World War II descended. It was a great success for the U.S., blah, blah, blah. So everybody wanted to be gung-ho American. Um, and we didn't get, my generation didn't get taught Cajun French. So uh, that's, a, that's something oh, that's I would kind of bad. regret. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they tried when I was 12 to like, make me learn, but it was, I bet my mind was going in other directions then. Yeah, but you were deeply involved in the music and uh, and touched by the music during your growing up years, and then you kind of got away from it for a while. But this leads us to another topic taken up in the movie, <coughs> is that, uh, I'm trying not to cough here, is, is that your dad was a butcher, and therein lies your initial familiarity with the brain. Tell us right. about your brain job. <laughs> yeah, so as a little kid, you know, um, I would hang out in the meat market. Um, my job, one of my jobs, I guess the main one, was to take my little fingers and reach into the brain. You could see where the bullet had gone in. You know, this is the way they would. Actually, the bullet didn't kill the cows, but it would stun them. It was a twenty-two rifle, so that has a very small little piece of lead in it, and it would go into the the animal's head and stun them uh, enough to where the animal could then be kind of out of it and, and butchered in the traditional sense. Um, but you could see the, the bleeding where the bullet had gone into the once you've taken the brain out. And so my job was to go in there with my fingers and pull the, the, the uh, lead out without damaging the tissue too much because brains were a delicacy and it would be sold in the meat market. So yeah. it's best if it looked pretty nice. So I would just pull those things out. And I learned from doing that uh, about the cerebral hemisphere. I didn't know what anything was called, but I knew you could pull those two parts apart and they would just, you know, the hemispheres would just kind of come off. Cerebellum, you could rip off as well in the back. And yeah. then there was a kind of stalk that, you know, was what I would now call the brainstem and hypothalamus and thalamus that was sticking up there from that, from what was left. Uh, but I didn't know any of that at the time. It certainly didn't like, oh, then I'm going to become a brain scientist. No, nothing like that. I went <laughs> off to college, studied. Uh, I got a master, undergraduate degree in business administration and a master's in marketing. And while studying marketing, I got interested in, in questions about psychology. Um, and because, you know, I wanted to, it was the late 60s and it wasn't very cool to be involved in business and marketing. 
but I found a, an angle, consumer protection, that I could um, be involved in and kind of like have some, you know, self-respect and not be uh, just like an outsider amongst all my other friends who are politically active and hippies, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, business, consumer protection was a good angle, and I learned a lot about psychology. Learned all about Skinner. Skinner was a big fan of mine uh, right when I was first learning. I just loved the systematicity of everything. And so I wrote to him, and uh, this was, I, it must have been in the late 60s, early 70s. I wrote to him and said I wanted to develop a model of consumer behavior uh, based on his principles. And he wrote back and said, Well, you know, uh, thank you for considering, but I, I don't like the idea of using my work to sell products. I said, that's not what I was. I wanted to help consumers, but anyway, his uh, his message to me was, you know, part of what kind of pushed me to get out of uh, the whole business thing, because uh, I really wanted to learn more about psychology. Yeah, I still have yeah, that left. Yeah, <laughs> and oh, um, that's that's a good keepsake. I actually saw yeah. him on the corner in Boston or Cambridge, and. Uh, but I didn't. I didn't have the nerve to say anything to him. I couldn't think of anything to say. But he was a very distinctive-looking guy. Yeah. You couldn't mistake him exactly. for anybody else. So I went on to do my my dissertation in uh, marketing uh, on my PhD master's not, not my PhD, my master's thesis in marketing on post-purchase cognitive dissonance, um, and you know so I worked for. They, I pretended to work for a car company. They gave me a list of their recent uh, purchaser purchasees um, and their phone numbers. And so half of the list I called and acted like I was gonna, you know, was on, working on the behalf of the car company. Wanted to make sure everything was going right. And if they had any problems, just let me know. We'd take care of it. The other half I didn't call at all. So the half that got called seemed to have more, you know, consumer satisfaction uh, in the months after the purchase than those that I didn't call. So that was my introduction to Leon Festinger and cognitive dissonance. And when we started, when I got to Stony Brook and worked with Mike Kazanica for my PhD, I had no idea that cognitive dissonance would be like the main theme of my PhD dissertation as well, which is the, the post um, post uh, behavior. Um, and you know, unconscious behaviors generating this dissonance that required cognitive interpretation to reduce the dissonance. Yeah. So that was a kind of um, interesting little uh, connection between the two. Yeah, it's a little, an amazing thread there that comes yeah. back in, into your <clears throat> life. And yeah. uh, also you started doing, uh, you got back into bands during, <laughs> during high school. You formed some bands. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I wasn't that into Cajun music as a kid because it was kind of old man's music, but I, you know, I did develop a fondness for it that, that I have the in, in adult life. Um, uh, but I was fascinated with music. I'd go to bed with a transistor radio in my ear every night, and I became a disc jockey in high school. But I also had a couple of bands. One of them was called the Countdowns, um, and the Countdowns were. Um, uh, you know, it was a kind of 60s thing, countdowns. Um, and we weren't that good. We could only play like blues-based songs like the Rolling Stones would generate. But um, there was another band in town that could do the Beatles impeccably. And I'm oh. still in touch with one of those guys that was in that. He, <laughs> he actually made it into the Louisiana Music Hall of Fame, which is quite a wow. feat given the nature of music in Louisiana. So that's, that's wow. kind of fun. 
But in college, here's an interesting thing. In college, we had this one night where we put together this kind of air guitar band. And again, this is long before I had any indication that I was interested in the brain. Uh, but I remembered the brain from uh, the butcher market thing. And we called the, this band Cerebellum and the Medullas. That was my first brain-based uh, <laughs> band name. <laughs> wow. Little did I know that I would later have a, ba a band named the Amygdaloids. So. Yeah, yeah. You really, uh, you really had some themes running in your life. <coughs> and we've gone into, uh, we've gone into some of the, uh, some of the psychological work that your your uh, life took the direction that it took. Um, at some point you got married. Where did that happen? Well, um, I got married once when, in uh, in college. Uh, that, that didn't last too long. I had the seven-year itch. Um, but my <laughs> true love uh, of my life, my uh, wife, Nancy Prinzenthal, uh, we met in 1980 here in New York. And... Um, Three weeks later, took a three-week trip to Italy and never separated after that. Yeah, wow. Wow. Now, another important chapter is uh, the death of your first son, Jacob. And uh, what can you share with us about that? Well, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail, but he had a problem with uh, with drugs, and especially heroin, and uh, we didn't know about it. And until the very end, and uh, he overdosed as a 17-year-old, and so it was yeah. you know, an awful thing. Well, I gather that you went through some period of grief uh, after that, <coughs> and I have the feeling that uh, that music was part of your healing eventually. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, I wrote the first song I ever wrote uh, after Jacob died. It was about him, of course. Um, and, and then I, you know, just kept uh, finding music to be kind of a healing experience to, to play with. You know, I was never a great guitarist uh, or a songwriter or singer or anything. Uh, but when I started writing songs, the, it opened up this new world for me because I could never really sing a song that somebody else wrote, but I could sing my songs because they were written in the key and in the, uh, the range, the vocal range, in which I am capable of. Uh, so that was an eye opener that that uh, you know it's really if you narrow it down to what you can do, and this is true of anything <laughs> in life, right? You start with something you can do, and then you can build on that and yeah. go further with it. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't matter if you're not that good at something; you can find some angle to approach it if you really like it. Yeah, and your your musical life has been very full, and you it even gave you chances to. Uh, <clears throat> Meet some famous musicians. Tell us, tell yeah, us who had, you uh, met and who you worked with. <laughs> who I met? Well, um, I guess the you know like the the biggest highlight in terms of famous musicians was um, uh, my meeting of Roseanne Cash, uh, and you know I had invited Roseanne to. Uh, which, the way we met was that my book editor at Viking was her book editor at Viking, um, and she had a brain tumor and she was writing a, a kind of memoir about uh you know that experience uh and rick said well would you like to meet my other author who works on the brain and she said yeah so we met and had a you know had a good conversation had i think we met at a mexican restaurant in uh in chelsea in new york and 
had a good conversation. And um, then, you know, a few weeks later, I I wrote, I, I guess I called her. I don't know if we had email back then. I guess we did, but I, I called her and said, Roseanne, I'd like you to, um, I, um, if you could participate in this benefit we're doing uh, at a at a music club in New York uh, called Rocket Science, R-O-C-K-I-T <laughs> Science. Um, and we, we had some, we had a great lineup of, uh, of musicians in that, Rufus uh, Wainwright and um, oh, yeah. uh, D. Snyder from Twisted Sister, all kinds of crazy musicians. It was, it was a lot of fun. Lenny Kay was in it. Um, and Roseanne agreed to, to be the, the headliner, you know, but uh, then she called at the last minute and said, my agent is, you know, booked me in, in Germany and I'm going to have to go. I'm really sorry. And you know, you know how you never say the right thing at the right time when you feel like, oh, I should have said that. This yeah. is the only time in my life where I, I said what I should have said. I said, well, would you sing on my album instead? <laughs> and, and she, you know, she was like caught. She said, yes, of course. <laughs> so, yeah. um, we we were produced we were generating this album the album's actually was produced by the company same company that is uh that did the film that you were talking about <clears throat> the film's called the uh, neuroscience of emotions the life uh, work and music of dr joseph ledoux uh, but they the same company produced my uh, album called theory of my mind to take off on theory of mind of course and on that song is, is on that album is a song called mind over matter which roseanne sings backup vocals on and another song called um uh, um <laughs> you remind me of me <laughs> It's, you know, I haven't thought about this song in such a long. I've never, I'd never play it. It's a sentence to death for try comma crime of passion. That's what it's called. Oh yeah. So uh, yeah, so I, it's a crime of passion. You know, blah blah. And Roseanne's okay. She's singing the background. It's crime of passion is. <laughs> so it's uh, it's a lot of fun. You know, we never. It's not like we played together in that sense, but um, because when you record music, everybody records their parts separately, and you just put it all together. But we did have a, a, an event at NYU a few years ago um, where she and I had a conversation and then uh, we played together. Um, also joining me at that was my co-conspirator in acoustic music, Colin Dempsey. We have a, a group called So We Are. And we've traveled all over the world as So We Are because I'll be invited to give a lecture in, I don't know, Norway. And they'll say, can you bring the amygdaloids? I'll say, no, but I can bring Colin. Uh -huh. So Colin has come with me to uh, Scandinavia and Mexico, Italy, all over the place. Now, are the, and, uh, is that repertoire uh, based on uh, brain science or do you branch out? Yeah, for the most part, we are the acoustic amygdaloids, basically. Uh -huh. And there's some okay. other songs we play, but mostly it's amygdaloid songs. Yeah, yeah. The amygdaloids is, at this point is more of a a kind of thought or idea rather than an actual band. Um, we were, the whole band played together on the first two albums, but after that, and then there are like four more, five more albums after that. Um, it's just been me and whoever I could put together. <laughs> yeah, but still doing the the uh, the basic same science, songs, yeah. same kind of songs. The yeah, we you know we, we created our our own genre in this field here. It's, it's called heavy mental. 
<laughs> I love that. I love that. So all the songs are, not most of them, are love songs about mind and brain and mental disorders. But if you think about it, most rock songs are love songs about mind, <laughs> mind and brain and mental disorders. So it's yeah. not that different. <laughs> right. It's just as right. a, you know, the, the title says mind, or there's a little bit of mind and brain in there. But yeah, I kind of exhausted the genre, though. So right now I'm working on uh, a suite of six songs called just love stories and nothing about mind and brain except, uh -huh. the, you know, implicit. Yeah. yeah. Now, also... You have three. Three of your songs are in a, a Werner Herzog. Herzog. Uh, yeah, Ver, Werner Herzog has a documentary uh, that that uh, is floating around at various film festivals right now. It's called Theater of Thought, and uh, the Theater of Thought, I think. And um, he interviews a bunch of people. Um, his, I think, his documentary style is he starts and he sees where it goes. Uh, this documentary started out, I think, about AI or something like that. It went around and they were having a conversation in, I don't know, somewhere in Seattle or someplace one night after a shoot. And two of the cameramen on that shoot had been on a shoot in my office uh, for some podcast uh, 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 right before that. And they told Werner that he should talk to me. So I got a call at, I don't know, seven o'clock on Saturday night from a, a colleague who was the, the, the science advisor of this thing. And he said, you know, can Werner Herzog come to you um, on Monday? And at that point, I was upstate in the Catskills. I said, sure, come to our house on in the Catskills. We'll have the interview. Then we'll have some wine and cheese outside on the deck. So they showed up on Monday afternoon. Um, <clears throat> he said, OK, start playing your guitar while we set up. So I start playing, play this song, play that song, play this song. And he said, okay, that one. So the song he picked was called Map of Your Mind. Um, and that uh, that is in the, the video. Um, but he also used two other songs, one called When the Night is Dark um, for someone who is uh, practicing tightrope walking. This is the guy who walked between the World Trade Centers yeah. a, a long time ago. Um, and so he, he his tightrope walking in this short of this, uh, this part of the video is perfectly timed to the song when mm -hmm. the night is dark, you know, I lose my fear and all that kind of stuff. Oh, so wow. those two are in it. And then the the last song that's in it is running over the credits of the movie. Now, that's a song I've had to disavow because it talks about the amygdala as being the seat of fear. So uh, yeah, I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd be a, <laughs> I wouldn't be true to myself if I was still doing that song. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for Werner Herzog, I'd let it go. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the moments that I thought was delightful uh, in the movie is your wife saying that uh, she had no idea that she was going to be marrying a rock star. Uh, you know, here she thought she yeah, was she thought marrying... Married and Married a, a, a neuroscientist. <laughs> and then Gazaniga, uh, do I have his name right? Gazaniga? Yeah, yeah Gazan close enough. Dr. Gazaniga uh, remarked that he felt that it was very uh, instrumental, <laughs> no pun intended, that yeah, yeah, you... Yeah. That you tend to use both sides of your brain, if you will, 
that's been that's been uh, and the top and bottom as well. Yeah, that's been endemic to your life, and uh, I thought that was an interesting point as well. Yeah. And then a play has been written about fifteen of your songs. Right. So a playwright in San Francisco took fifteen of my songs and created the arc of a, a musical play based on them. And we just did, like a couple of weeks ago, we did a, a reading in San Francisco uh, at the um, Marsh Theater, um, which was a tremendous amount of fun. We had great actors in there. You know, it's not, at, at a reading, the actors are not performing. They're, they're reading their lines and singing the songs and so forth. Um, and being, you know, theatrical in their presentation. But it's, it's mostly just sitting down just to see how it all goes. You know, it's kind of a practice uh, thing. Um, and it went really well. So we're, we're pursuing it. We're trying to, you know, find some, uh, someone who will help support uh, the actual production of a real play, because that's a much bigger deal than just having some people sitting around, um, you know, reading. So, but it was fun. I played guitar in it. Uh, Colin Dempsey, my partner in crime, uh, was there playing with me. And there was a drummer from out there in L.A., play, uh, sorry, in San Francisco playing. And it's just the three of us and the, the crew, the cast. Wow. So where's, where's it going next? Do you have any idea? Uh, such an <clears throat> extraordinary life and, and so expansive. Well, I, I'm closing my lab in, uh, in August. I've um, done enough research. Um, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's been a good run, but it's, it's so hard to raise money and to worry about having to pay young people. And, you know, you never know with, with uh, research, whether you're going to have money next year or not, because yeah. it's just hard to budget. We're not businessmen. We just, uh, you know, I had some background in business, but I didn't learn that much. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so I just, I'm deci I decided I'm going to spend more time doing the things I really want to do more writing and, uh, music and, uh, plays and whatever it comes along, you know. Yeah, yeah, a gentleman philosopher. Yeah. I'm not retiring from NYU. I'll, I'll still, you know, take a couple of years to wind everything uh, down uh -huh. there. Uh, but I'll probably retire in a couple of years. So. Yeah. Well, can I um, have permission to send the link to put the link that you sent me, the, the No Trouble Involved link, uh, to, the, um, to your movie about you and your work. Can I put, put that in the show notes? Uh, sure. And then, yeah, I think that's fine. Um, it, you know, was, uh, I don't think you could, I'm not sure you could like repost it on your site, um, but you could certainly put it in the notes. That would be great. No, I think what I'm talking about is reposting it on my site. <laughs> the link, but but like that you go to that you can activate the link from your site. That's probably yeah. fine. Yeah. I mean, yeah, as long as it's oh. not in the the video here. Yeah. Yeah. No, it won't be in the video. Yeah. I, you know, I'll I'll just ask the producer and just clear it with them and let you know. But I'm sure it's fine. Okay. Because it's it's a public link, so it's available for anybody. Yeah, that would it's be fine. great. That would be great. And uh, also, uh, I wanted to share it with, uh, you mentioned your partners in crime, and Amanda, Amanda, a mutual friend. Thorpe. Amanda Thorpe? Yeah, yeah, Amanda Thorpe. 
Oh, how do you know Amanda? Uh, she introduced you and me. She's the one who got us together. Uh, I said, oh, oh, he, oh he's not going to be interested in, in talking to me. And, <laughs> and I forgot lo and behold, <laughs> lo and behold <laughs> yeah, you that's, were. That's great. Yeah, how, how do you two know each other? She says that uh, she's made music she with was, you. Yeah, she was the bassist in the amygdaloids for a couple of years. Uh -huh. you know, wow. right, that are during our last years in New York. Yeah. And so we became, we wrote some songs together. We are uh, good friends. I'm right now. I'm um, in the fall. I spent five weeks in London on sabbatical at London school of economics. And I'm, I'm going back for seven weeks in the spring and we're going to have a gig in London uh, that she's organizing right now. Oh, great. Great. I love Amanda. She's so wonderful. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad we, you reminded me of that connection. Yeah, yeah. Well, I found her absolutely charming. And particularly, she sent me a couple of clips of her playing uh, some music. She's fantastic. And, uh, incredible singer. Yeah, yeah. And I found her absolutely uh, sexy and beguiling, um, <laughs> her performance. They're 20 yeah, years great. between us, so there's no danger there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I think we've done it here. Can you think of anything cool. else that you'd like to say? No, this has been great. This has been great. Thank you. Okay, it's been, been a pleasure. It was great to talk to Dr. Joe Ledoux again. It's been about 10 years since our last conversation, which focused on two of his latest books at the time. He has been a prodigious writer, researcher, and musician. But more about that later. This time I wanted to focus on a topic I knew he has been presenting about lately, how to get the mental back into mental health. This was a bit surprising to me because I know he's long been associated with behaviorism, animal behaviorism at that. In fact, he spent much of his career studying rat brains. He'd been given a mission by his doctoral advisor, Dr. Michael Gazaniga, who was known for his own research on the split brain. He suggested that Joe could make his mark in neuroscience by finding the circuits associated with emotion in the brain. Little to nothing was known at that time about the circuits that handle emotion. Joe ended up doing pioneering work that, in fact, essentially created a whole new field of brain study. Joe's name became associated with the amygdala to such a degree that he was later to create a rock group called the amygdaloids. But that's getting ahead of the story. Turns out there was no specific brain center or circuit for emotion. The amygdala was but a way station. But you will have to listen to Joe's explanation in the interview. It's rich with detail. We went on to discuss other developments in Joe's remarkable journey. So remarkable, in fact, that an hour-long documentary has been made about it and I'm putting a link to it in the show notes at shrinkwrapradio.com. Plus, you'll find much of that content covered in our interview, so go ahead and listen if you haven't already. 
You're in for a real treat. Hi, Dave. It's Heiko from Germany. I work in a violence counseling center as a psychologist and psychotherapist in Düsseldorf. And I graduated from university more than 20 years ago. So I'm always on the lookout for new perspectives and new developments in psychotherapy and psychology. And so I discovered your Wise Counsel podcasts several years ago. And it made me feel like I was sitting in, in a lecture hall in university again. And I liked it very much. Uh, I decided to follow your Shrink Rep Radio podcast. And when a topic comes along that it seems of interest to me, like recently Dr. Rumanier on deliberate practice, I listen to it and mostly I, I very much enjoy it. And so I think it's only decent if I like it that I contribute to the cost and reward your efforts you have with it. You offer this, this guilt-free option. It's only $12 a year. I mean, it's almost nothing. So I decided to rid myself of my guilt and be decent and pay something for the enjoyment you give me with your podcasts. Thank you very much for your efforts and I hope you will keep them coming. Hello, Heiko. It's great to hear from you there in Dusseldorf, already 20 years out of school and seeking professional stimulation. Thanks for becoming a financial donor and encouraging others to follow suit. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks so much to my spectacularly accomplished guest, Dr. Joe Ledoux, an author, researcher, and musician. It was a real treat to speak with you again. Next week, my guest will be Scott Barry Kaufman, psychologist, author of Choose Growth, a workbook for transcending trauma, fear, and self-doubt. Until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.